Well, it is a joy every time I get to be up here and open God's Word with you. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. And as we begin, let's ask God to speak to us through His Word. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your Word is truth. Speak to us through it by your Spirit, that we may honor you as we more fully know and love our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, growing up in my family, most holidays, we would gather at my grandparents' house, and my siblings and I and my cousins would sit around the table, and we'd snack, and we'd play games, and eventually the discussion would always turn to the family lore, those stories that we would hear year after year. There would be the one about my uncles setting fire to a field and blaming it on my dad. There would be the one about the injuries my grandpa got from trying to drop kick a cat through the back door. There would be several about my great-grandfather dying and leaving seven young children at home and my great-grandmother raising all of them on a farm by herself. There would be the one about my grandma, who very emphatically, as a young girl, told her parents she did not like being told what to do. Kids, do you ever ask your parents or your aunt and uncles or your grandparents what they were like when they were kids? Do you listen to those stories? I know lots of us enjoy reading biographies or even watching movies that follow the lives of famous people or important historical figures. And what do they usually begin with? Usually, the writer or the director chooses a handful of interesting events from that person's early life. As I was preparing for this sermon, I wondered, why do we do that? Why are we so interested in what people were like as kids? And I'm not a psychologist or an analyst or anything, but I thought of a couple of reasons that I think are true. First, thinking of these people as children makes them more relatable, brings them down to earth, and it shows us how really deep down our ancestors and our heroes are just like us. They had to learn to walk, and to read, to ride a bike, to experience puberty, and all of the emotions and everything that comes from moving from childhood to adulthood. Something about knowing what these people were like when they were young helps us to know them better. And second, I think we want to know about their early lives so we can find something to grab onto that will help us become like them. We look to see what it is we can take from their lives to show us what we could and should be. Our passage tonight is actually the only record we have of Jesus between his infancy and beginning his ministry as a 30-year-old man. A full 30 years pass, and this is the one glimpse we get into Jesus' life. This event in Jerusalem when he's 12 years old. So I think it's worth asking, why this story? What's so important that we learn from this event in the life of Christ that caused the Lord to inspire Luke to write it down for us? Remember, Luke was writing to bolster the faith, faith of Theophilus. He was writing so Theophilus could have confidence that the things that he had learned were true. And I think what we see in this passage is that Jesus is at the same time fully God and fully man. 
and that his life had a very specific purpose, to do the will of his heavenly Father in saving a people for himself. Luke recounts this story because it gives us a glimpse of the reality that the larger catechism summarizes in question 37. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her, yet without sin. Fully God, fully man. One person with two natures. But what's remarkable, remarkable about this passage is just how ordinary it is. I mean, think about it. How many families over the years traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? How many times in the history of the world has a young boy been separated from his family and lost in the big city? Yet, with all the ordinary, there's something different about this young man. And it's not until you stop to listen to him, to consider what he's saying, that you begin to realize just how remarkable he is. So let's walk through the passage together, and we'll see what it shows us about Christ. And along the way, we'll draw some applications for us as a proper response. There's an outline in the back of the bulletin, if you want to follow along. We'll see the Passover journey of a family, a problem Jesus has not found, a proclamation about Jesus' father, and pondering about Jesus' future. Look with me at verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. There were three times each year that the men of Israel were called to appear before the Lord. And one of these was the Passover, which would be followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. At this point in history, it was customary for only the men in the outlying areas to make this journey to Jerusalem. So if women joined in, it was actually a sign of particular devotion. So we see already in our passage what we've seen already in Luke and what Pastor Taylor pointed out last week. Jesus' parents were faithful and devout. Mary and Joseph were dedicated to the ways that God had prescribed for his people to live. And each year they made the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Remember, the Exodus was the greatest and most important event in the history of Israel up to this point. This deliverance from bondage in Egypt, being brought to Mount Sinai where God covenanted with them, this was seen as the birth of the nation of Israel. It was achieved through God defeating their enemies, redeeming them out of slavery, and graciously passing over them by the sign of the blood of the Lamb. He spared the firstborn of every house who was covered by the blood. So the Lord called his people once a year to remember, to celebrate, and Joseph faithfully led his family to Jerusalem every year. The exodus and the yearly remembrance of it in the Passover pointed to the work that Jesus would fulfill in delivering his people from their sins. And in this story tonight, as a boy, he, the light, takes part alongside his people in the shadows that point to himself. This journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem would have taken several days. Being faithful Jews, the caravan would have set out but avoided going through Samaria, meaning they would cover 80 miles in each direction. So for reasons both of safety 
and celebration. They'd form these traveling parties along the way. Sometimes an entire village would set off together, and as they went, they would, they would uh, grow as these friends and relatives and acquaintances would join from each village as they passed. It's possible the caravan would be formed with the women and the children up front and the men in the back. But regardless of how they're arranged, here's the picture. A large group of people, constantly increasing, comprised of gaggles of men and women and children and pack animals that are intermingling and catching up, playing and excitedly planning their celebrations in Jerusalem. They'd cover about 20 miles a day meaning that if the family were to remain in Jerusalem for the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread, it would be two weeks from their departure until they returned home to Nazareth. So this is no small undertaking. Two whole weeks every single year, but Joseph and Mary made the trek each year. Our passage tells us when Jesus was 12, he joined them. We're not told whether this was the first time that he came, We're not told whether his younger siblings had been born, and if so, if they came along. Luke simply says, this year, Jesus went. The common practice at this time was that boys reaching the age of 13 were viewed as reaching an age of spiritual self-responsibility. It's carried over into the modern practice of bar mitzvah. So oftentimes, 12-year-old boys would accompany their fathers to Jerusalem to observe a Passover celebration so that the following year they would be ready to partake themselves. So we have here Jesus, a boy on the cusp of adulthood. And it's interesting to me to think that 13 years earlier, Mary probably wasn't much older than he is now when the angel visited and she received the first revelation of her son and who he would be. So I think... In these first couple of verses, there's a word here for parents, especially for fathers. Joseph and Mary are not only concerned with their own spiritual lives, but they take seriously the charge they were given to steward the child. They gave him the covenant sign of circumcision. They brought him to participate in worship alongside the people of God. They would have instructed Jesus in the events of the Passover, the rituals that commemorated it, and the meaning behind all of it as far as they knew. As parents, we've been given the same charge to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We should take this call just as seriously and teach our children the faith while pointing them to the covenant-keeping God who gave them to us. And kids, there's a word for you here too. You probably don't understand how blessed you are to have parents that love you enough to bring you to church, to bring you to worship every week. This gathering is for you. You need to hear God's word. You need to pray. You need to sing God's praise. You're not too young to worship the Lord. And like Jesus, you can be joyful and thankful that your parents love you and are raising you in the church. So next, the family runs into a problem. Jesus is not found. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. The family stayed for the full week, and after the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, Joseph and Mary prepared to return home. They thought their son was somewhere in the caravan. There's there's no reason here to assume they're being negligent. Uh, In fact, that would undercut everything that we've learned about Joseph and Mary so far. It would have been natural for them to all just set out as a group, each of them assuming Jesus was with someone else in the group. It wasn't until they stopped for the night that they realized that he's not there. They searched and couldn't find him. And there were no location services in ancient Judea. They couldn't call up the police department of every village they had stopped along the way. The only option they have is to retrace their steps. So they start back for Jerusalem. They were a full day away. It took them a full day to get back. When they get to Jerusalem, they begin their search around the city. And, and the language here hints that they were, began searching and they continued searching. Their, their anxiety was growing as their search continued. The third day, they come to the temple and they find Jesus sitting with his peers at the feet of the teachers, interacting with them just like any student would, asking and answering questions. And again, I think the idea here is the normalcy of it all. I think oftentimes we can become so focused on defending the deity of Jesus that it clouds our judgment as we think of his humanity. And I get it. It's mind-blowing to think of the two natures of Christ. There's a reason it took multiple church councils over several centuries to flesh out, pun intended, what the scripture teaches us about the incarnation and to correct all of the errors that had come up. But in our zeal for affirming the deity of Christ, let us not ignore his humanity. After his birth and the visit of the wise men, the escape to Egypt and the return home, eventually Joseph and Mary settled into a normal life with Jesus. They changed his diapers. They taught him to walk and to talk. They taught him the very scriptures that he as God had inspired. So this event encapsulates the summary statement we heard last week, that Jesus grew in body and mind. Luke doesn't invent some legendary story about the Lord. Instead, he writes about Jesus' growth like any other child. Jesus didn't speak from the cradle. He couldn't immediately recite the Torah by heart. He didn't perform little miracles to amuse his friends or to help his mom around the house, or to get his chores done. And so, when he goes missing from a traveling party, nothing from his life suggested the problem would have a miraculous solution. His parents didn't look for him to just show up out of thin air. They went looking. This is because Jesus was, and get this, still is, truly man. Which means that at one point, he was truly boy. So kids, absolutely every type of thing that you experience, Jesus experienced, except for sin. He had friends, and sometimes they mistreated him. 
He had to learn new material and new skills. According to his human nature, he did not know everything. He was even tempted to sin, but he never did. So kids and adults, anything you are going through, Jesus understands. This is what we heard in our study of Hebrews in chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So no matter what you are going through, you can pray in his name and he will hear and he will understand. But the good news is he didn't only become like us so that he could sympathize with us or even just to show us how we should live. He came to live perfectly in our place. He was the perfect baby, the perfect toddler, the perfect boy, the perfect son, the perfect student, the perfect brother, the perfect savior. And we receive his perfection on our behalf simply by putting our trust in him. So when we sin, we shouldn't hide from him in shame. Instead, we can confess our sins and know that we are forgiven because of his perfect life as a true man. But here in our passage, we see this boy knows his identity. He knows that he is also truly God. And in the next few verses, we get an insight into his self-perception and his future ministry as we read his first recorded words a proclamation about Jesus' father. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying, that he spoke to them. This boy is gifted. He sits at the feet of the teachers at the temple, and he clearly has great insight into the matters of the law. But we need to be clear about what is happening here. Luke is describing Jesus' participation as a student in class. The teachers at the time would instruct by asking questions of the students and then getting their answers, and then the students would ask questions back and the teachers would answer. Jesus is learning. He's not teaching. But his answers are astonishing for their understanding and their clarity. He gets to the very heart of the matter. His mind, while constrained by the limits of humanity, is unstained by the effects of sin. So as he learns, he perceives with perfection. And wouldn't you love to know exactly what the topic was? What, what was it that this rural 12-year-old boy said that would stop, the, stop these teachers in their tracks? Unfortunately, for my curiosity, and maybe yours, we're not told. But I do want to take a few interesting points here as we move to, through the rest of Luke's gospel. Let's pause and look at a few interesting things here. First, this is the only time Luke uses the word teachers 
to describe these religious scholars. Usually, if he uses the word teacher, he's talking about Jesus. And most of the time, if he's talking about these men, he calls them scribes and lawyers. From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he will be at odds with these men and their disciples because they lead the people of God astray. And they oppress them with legalism and by making up their own rules for the people to follow. Now, Jesus peacefully learns and dialogues while sitting at their feet. In the future, he will correct and condemn them standing face to face. Now, there's astonishment at a young boy in Jerusalem. But this will turn to jealousy, anger, and hatred of the man from Galilee as we move through the gospel. Second, the next Passover that Luke records Jesus celebrating will be his last. The next time we see Jesus in Jerusalem for Passover, he's finishing the work that his father sent him to do. He will then be the lamb suffering for his people. And his mother will experience even more grief than she does in our passage tonight. And third, where are we? We're at the temple again. We've been here over and over in the first couple of chapters of Luke. But from this point forward in the gospel, the temple is not a place of peace and worship, but it'll be a place of temptation and confrontation. This is the last positive interaction that we see Jesus having in his father's house. The teachers are not alone in their reaction to this boy. While they're astonished at Jesus' answers, Joseph and Mary are overwhelmed to have found him. Their reaction seems to be a combination of relief at discovering him, bewilderment at the fact that he is at the temple, and amazement in listening to him interacting with the teachers of the law. And Mary's response seems only natural for a mother, doesn't it? She was so worried about her son, she really must register her complaint and ask him why he acted in such a way that caused her and Joseph such distress. I think this is the first in an unfolding series of fulfillments of Simeon's prophecy we heard last week. That prophecy will culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. Simeon had told Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This would not be the last time that Mary's soul was pierced because of Jesus' mission. And Jesus answers her in a gentle but firm and direct way. And we read his earliest recorded words. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mary's concern was for herself and Jesus' adopted father, but there was something more necessary. Jesus says, I must. There are a handful of things that Jesus says he must do in the Gospel of Luke, and they all have to do with his mission to save sinners. He must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He must suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and raised. He must continue on to Jerusalem to die there. He must stay at Zacchaeus' house, and he must 
fulfill the scriptures by his life, death, and resurrection. As we hear our incarnate Lord speak for the first time, he demonstrates that he has a mission and everything else must be submitted to that mission. He must be in his father's house and about his father's business. Anything that detracts from his pursuit of obeying his father must become secondary. And while I don't think we should read too far into it, there does, to be a, there does seem to be at least a slight rebuke to Mary in his response. She says, your father and I were worried, meaning Joseph and herself. And Jesus' reply was, I was in my father's house where I was supposed to be. Jesus speaks of his relationship to the Father in a unique way that doesn't really come through in our English translations. Here's what he's essentially saying. I am the only son of this Father, and it was necessary for me to be where he wants me to be. While we are not sons of God in the same way that Jesus is, through union with him, we are adopted by his Father, and we have the same call to obey I think from this, we can draw a clear conclusion. We must not submit to any demands that contradict the demands of God. We are to submit to lawful government unless they require us to disobey the law of God. We are to submit to our parents unless they require us to disobey the law of God. We are to submit to our employers or our teachers or our spiritual authority unless they require us to disobey the law of God. And to make a direct application, what things prevent you from being in your father's house at worship on the Lord's day? Is there a vocation, a recreation, a family expectation, a fear, a sin, or shame that keeps you away? If so, consider whether you need to say to that demand, whatever it is, I must be in my Father's house. Or more broadly, what, th- what things draw you away that, from the vocations that God has given to you as a Christian, as a son or a daughter, as a spouse or a parent or a sibling, a friend, a church member, an employer, an employee, a neighbor or a citizen, all those places where we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Are you following the call of the author of Hebrews and the example of Jesus to cast off anything that would hinder you from running the race of a faith-filled life? Praise the Lord, since none of us are doing that perfectly, that Jesus knew exactly what the Father required of him, And he obeyed him on our behalf and then died in our place so that we are free from the guilt and the shame of our own failure to obey. And kids, I want to speak to you again directly for a minute. So can you look up at me? You can learn from this passage too. Right now, your parents might be fully responsible for you. They might make you come to church. They might read the Bible to you and pray with you. I sure hope they do. But there will come a time when it will be up to you whether you will follow what God calls you to do or whether you will do what you want to do. Learn from Jesus 
that even when you are young, you can learn his word and follow him. One day, you must take hold of the promises and the obligations that you were given in your baptism. Don't just count on your parents. The Bible says you must repent of your sin. You must trust in Jesus. And you must try to obey him as the Holy Spirit makes you more like Jesus. And especially to our middle schoolers and our high schoolers, you're probably already beginning to feel that tug of independence from your parents. I know you're hit all the time with temptations and distractions that would pull you away from Christ. And I'm sorry to say, it's not going to get any easier. As you grow and you move out of your parents' home, you go off to college, or you get a job, or you get married, the devil will do everything he can to pull you away from your father and his house now. And if your faith doesn't find a firm foundation now, it's much more likely to get swept away in the cares of the world later. So I promise you, things will go so much better for you if you will learn now to say no to the things that get in the way of your spiritual growth. Learn to be in God's house and about his business now, before the temptations and the distractions grow stronger. And know that here at Christ Church, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters of all ages who are committed to praying for you and walking alongside you as you do. So Jesus gives his answer, revealing that he knows himself to be not only fully human, but also fully God. He is the only begotten son. But, and not for the last time, his self-revelation is not understood. Joseph and Mary don't get it. That theme is going to continue. As even Jesus' own brothers, none of them seem to recognize who he is until after his resurrection. Gabriel's prediction, Mary's virgin conception, the prophecy fulfilling birth in Bethlehem, the angels announcing it to the shepherds, the prophecy of the old man and the old woman in the temple, and now this self-declaration of sonship, and yet they can't piece it all together. Which, praise the Lord for this comfort, because we are exactly the same, aren't we? How many times do we miss what God has so clearly revealed due to our own ignorance, our own stubbornness, our own laziness. And yet, he remains patient with us, continuing to work to remove our blindness and our calloused hearts. Jesus doesn't rebuke their confusion. And in time, he'll make sense of everything for them. So finally, the passage ends with Mary pondering about Jesus' future. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. His mission at the temple complete, Jesus returns and continues keeping the fifth commandment by honoring his mother and adopted father. Kids, Jesus is not only your example... But he is your substitute. He was basically a grown-up in his culture, but he still submitted to and honored his parents. You are called to do the same, even you teenagers. But he also did this for you. 
so that when you disobey, when you disrespect your mother and your father, if you trust Jesus, God does not hold that against you. But he sees you as if you were perfectly obedient all the time. Isn't that good news? This is the last we see of Joseph. Scripture doesn't record what happened to him, but it does seem that sometime between this and Jesus' earthly ministry beginning, his public ministry beginning, it seems that Joseph died. Joseph completed his God-given task of raising God's own son, possibly without ever fully coming to the realization of Jesus' identity and purpose. And just like after the shepherd's visit to the neonatal unit in a Bethlehem stable, Mary treasured these things in her heart. She was not content to remain in her ignorance, but she continued to hold on to these marvelous events until she came to fully realize what God had accomplished through her boy. And then Jesus grew. But this is not just Luke repeating himself from the end of verse 40. These first two chapters of Luke are prologue. They introduce us to Jesus, but they subtly hint at his identity as both truly God and truly man. And I agree with several of the commentators I read. I think Luke's been deliberate as he traces Jesus' early years. In chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus is a baby. In verse 40, he's a child. The word means a young child. We read the child grew. In our passage tonight, in verse 43, Jesus is the boy Jesus. And then finally in verse 52, he's simply Jesus. He has come of age, and he's an adult for the rest of the gospel. Our passage tonight is a coming-of-age story. And verse 52 is actually a summary that covers the next 18 years before Jesus begins his public ministry. But Luke is purposeful with his terminology, which is why there are two growth summaries. In verse 40, Luke says that Jesus grew, meaning the same way that little children grow. It just happens. They keep getting taller and more knowledgeable and more responsible, and it all just kind of happens to them without much effort on their part. But in verse 52, Jesus increased. This word carries with it the idea of action and responsibility. A child grows, but an adult gets an education, learns skills, develops virtue, or builds strength. And that's what Jesus does now. He knows that he must do what the Father has commissioned him to do. So the next 18 years are not empty, and they're not silent. He's increasing preparing himself for the public ministry of reconciliation in obscurity while continuing to live under the law. He is growing physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually, just like what we heard in our confession. He is loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's doing what every man must do. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is a true human subject to every experience and growth pattern that every person must endure so that he can become the savior of his people. So as we wrap up, I want us to take a moment to imitate Mary. 
What are the truths from this passage that you should treasure in your heart and ponder so that you can increase in your knowledge of, your love for, your joy in your Savior? And and not only this passage, but everything we've heard in the first two chapters. We need to treasure these things and keep them in mind and reflect on them through the rest of our study of Luke because they frame everything else that Luke tells us about Jesus. And brothers and sisters, every second of the incarnation of the Son of God was for us and for our salvation. There was not one breath that was superfluous or without meaning. Because our salvation required the obedience and death of a human mediator, Jesus lived every phase of life as a true man under the law. And he did it perfectly so that by his active obedience, he has earned the right of eternal life for all who have faith in him. And by his death, he has atoned for every sin committed by his people. I don't think it's too much to say that because Jesus was the perfect baby, babies may have eternal life. Because he was the perfect child, children may have eternal life. Because he was the perfect adolescent, adolescents may have eternal life. Because he was the perfect adult, adults may have eternal life. He offers all of this by free grace through faith. So when we consider what the eternal Son of God laid aside to become a son of Adam, our love for him should be kindled anew. Because he has experienced every weakness and every temptation, we can come to him as our sympathetic high priest and receive grace upon grace. So may all of us, from the two-year-olds to the 92-year-olds, come to our mediator, truly God, truly man, confident that we will find help in our time of need. And may we strive to imitate his life by the power of his spirit and to the glory of his and our Heavenly Father. Please pray with me.